This morning we return to our study in the book of Genesis, and we will be looking at a long and complex passage with a lot of moving parts and a lot of things going on. We're going to be looking at Genesis 29, verse 28, down through chapter 30 and verse 24. These are the words of God. So Laban gave Jacob his daughter Rachel as wife also, and Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as maid. Then Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, A troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. 
Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now, open these words to us. Show us, O Lord, what you were doing with your people so long ago, because we know you are the same God. We are the same sort of people. We face the same issues. We're called with the same calling. So, Lord, teach us, instruct us, build us up, and make us strong, all to your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text opens with a genuinely difficult an extremely difficult situation, a situation that would present a real hardship and challenge for the wisest and godliest of believers in any age. It is a situation Jacob, Rachel, and Leah were not designed for because God did not create man to husband more than one wife. Nor did he create woman to share her husband with another, and especially not her own sister. There is a reason why polygamy in the book of Genesis always results in hardship and unhappiness. And there is a reason why God will forbid a man from marrying sisters in the law of Moses, Leviticus 18.18. This was all part of God moving his people away from pagan sexuality of the ancient world, including widespread polygamy, and bringing them step by step back toward his creation design of one man, one woman monogamy. This is a situation that Jacob, Rachel, and Leah neither planned nor wanted. Jacob did not seek two wives. He sought one wife, Rachel, whom he loved at first sight and worked for for seven years. But his father-in-law Laban pulled a bait and switch, substituting Leah for Rachel in the darkness of the marital chamber. And then after Jacob had consummated the marriage with Leah thinking that she was Rachel, Laban then immediately dangled Rachel before him one more time in return for another seven years of labor. So Jacob never sought out to have two wives. Rachel wanted to marry Jacob. She did not want to share him with another woman, certainly not her own sister. Leah, who may have been complicit In her father Laban's bait-and-switch scheme, we don't know. The Bible doesn't expressly tell us. It doesn't tell us whether she was complicit, that is, a willing participant in the scheme, or what is very could very likely be the case, her father coerced her. In other words, he forced her. But even if Leah was complicit, She wanted Jacob for herself. She did not want to share him with another woman, 
Again, especially not her own sister. So Jacob, Rachel, and Leah all find themselves in an unexpected situation in which their personal dreams have been derailed. Only extraordinary focus on the living God. Only clinging to God with all their might. Only real deep knowledge of the ways of God. How he works through even such circumstances like this that are not ideal and where somebody is intending evil, at least Laban. He even works through those situations to accomplish his purposes and to accomplish the good of his people. Only extraordinary devotion to prayer, clinging to God, humility, confession of sin, commitment to obedience, and renewal of every one of these things on a daily basis, if not multiple times a day. Only that kind of extraordinary wisdom and devotion to God would avoid the kind of warfare we see between Rachel and Leah in our text, as well as the kind of failure of leadership that we see from Jacob. Unfortunately, instead of the extraordinary godliness that I'm describing, a vacuum was left, into which two evil plants, coveting and envy, took root and spread their destructive fruit. Now, these are major players for evil in the Word of God, so it's important that we understand what coveting and envy are, how they're related to one another, they're two sides of the same coin, and why it is they are so destructive. Well, coveting in the Bible is desiring a perceived advantage possessed by another. So it may be something physical. It may be a nice house. It may be a nice car. But it may also be other things. It may be the person's looks or their talent or their or their intelligence. It may be the, the, the friendships they enjoy. It may be some blessing that has come their way that has not come your way. Or it can be the opposite. It's some disadvantage, it's some trial or hardship that has come your way that does not come to the way of the other person. And so you're coveting something about their circumstances over yours. Envy goes along with that coveting, but it's directed toward the person and not the advantage. And it is really a form of resentment. It is ill will and resentment, or you could call it bitterness, toward the one whom you consider to be advantaged over your circumstances in some way. Now, in English, in modern English anyway... We sometimes use envy as a form of compliment. I envy your ability to play the piano. That means you're a good piano player, and and I envy, I, I acknowledge your talent. But it's not used that way in the Bible. In the Bible, envy is always ill-willed, resentment, or bitterness towards someone who has some sort of perceived advantage over you. Now, one of the reasons coveting and envy are so destructive 
is that they flourish in the same environment where love should be instead. Coveting and envy flourish in the environment of close connections and personal relationships where people share many things in common. There is a reason why God says that we shall not covet anything that is our neighbor's, somebody who is close to us, close at hand. It's those who are near to us that we inevitably end up comparing ourselves to. And so the bottom line is that family, church, perhaps a workplace, someplace like that, but certainly family and church are two prime examples of the environments in which coveting and envy are most likely to arise. In James chapter 4, verse 1, he was writing here to uh, Jewish Christian believers who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So James is writing to a bunch of Christians whom he has never met. He's writing to a bunch of churches he's never been to. And yet he speaks with absolute authority and assurance in saying, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And then he tells them, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel with one another. And in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. In other words, James did not have to know these people in particular. He did not have to ever visit their church to speak with complete assurance and authority is that I know you have fights and quarrels among you, and I know why. Coveting and envy, comparing yourselves with one another, having ill will toward people you consider to be more advantaged to you, The kind of thing that we see between Rachel and Leah, it may be a lesser form than that. This is a particularly intense situation. But James says, I know. I know what's happening among you, and I know why, and I'm telling you. So a good example of the way covenant and envy will come into a close friendship, it may be best friends, and destroy it, we find in the example of the two harlots who come before King Solomon claiming the same baby in 1 Kings chapter 3. Now, these two ladies were best friends. They lived in the same house. They shared everything in common. They even gave birth to sons three days apart from one another. Everything is the same. They are best friends until a difference arose between them. One of them's child was accidentally and tragically smothered during the night. Now her best friend had something that she didn't. There's a difference. She arose in the night and she switched the babies. Now both women come before King Solomon as enemies. Former best friends each claiming the living child. Solomon had no independent witnesses that he could call to determine the truth. 
he had to find a way to expose the hearts of the two women. And so he says to cut the child in two and give half to each. This, on the one hand, brings out the heart of a mother's love and the woman who is willing to give up her relationship with the child in order to save its life. Give her the child. Do not kill him. But it also brings out the heart of coveting and envy in the other. And what does that heart look like? Let him be neither yours nor mine. Cut him in two. That's the face of coveting and envy when it really begins to show its full self. That's what coveting and envy can do to the human heart, even among best friends. Never forget that the Bible tells us that the reason the religious leaders handed Jesus over for crucifixion was envy. Matthew twenty-seven eighteen. Now, if envy played that kind of role in the wickedest act of human history, what kind of role does it play everywhere else? The only true protection against coveting and envy getting a foothold in our lives is each one of us being fixed, centered, and stayed on the living God as our chief love and desire of life. The only true protection against coveting and envy getting a foothold in each of our lives is each of us being fixed centered and stayed on the living God as our chief love and desire of life. You see, biblical contentment is not a passive thing. Biblical contentment doesn't come from being unmotivated and not caring. Biblical contentment is a very active, affirmative thing, and it is a byproduct. You cannot just become content. Can't do it. It's a byproduct of something else. If you reach for contentment directly, it's going to run away from you. You have to reach for something else. Contentment comes on the rebound. Contentment is the byproduct of having God as your chief love and desire in life. And you are fixed on Him. Every day, the same. You just keep clinging to God. You keep recentering yourself on the living God. Contentment then comes from a life that is lived that way. When Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, he tells them, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you are lukewarm, he says. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. When you should be hot for me, you should be zealous toward me. Now, what's interesting there is that his word for zealous, well, it is the Greek word zelos. But it's the same word that James uses for coveting and envy in the book of James. It's the same word he uses for coveting in James 4.2. It's the same word he uses for envy in James 3.16. So you see, it's not a question of whether your heart is being heated. The question is, what's heating your heart? Is it zeal for the Lord because your heart is fixed and stayed upon Christ as your chief love and desire? 
Contentment will come from that on the rebound as a byproduct. But if you do not have that, if that's not what's heating your heart, then something else is going to. And coveting and envy are going to take root and work their destructive power. Now, with that understanding, let's come back and look at Rachel and Leah and what coveting and envy do to them. And then after we look at them a little bit, we're going to look at a positive example of a woman in the Bible under very similar circumstances who did not fall prey to coveting and envy solely because she was fixed on the living God. So Rachel and Leah are sisters, family. They grew up in the same house. Family is a prime environment where love should be, but it is also a prime environment where coveting and envy can come in if God is not the chief love and desire of life. What is the effect of coveting and envy on Rachel and Leah? Well, there are several. I am going to point out three main ones. The first one is what we've just been talking about. Their primary focus of life is not on God. It is on one another, and it is on winning, prevailing over the other. In verse 8, Rachel, for example, says, With great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. That's what their focus is. It's not on the living God. They will refer to God They will say things about God. God has a role in their life, but they're not centered on God. They're not fixed on God. So they're being carried away in the wind. The second effect we see is that each wants what the other has and resents the other for having it. Leah envies Rachel and covets the love that she has had from Jacob from the first time he met her. She's constantly saying things like, now my husband will love me, verse 32, or now my husband will become attached to me, verse 34. Rachel, on the other hand, envies Leah and covets the children she has, verse 1. The third effect we see among them is that each one of them's perspective of life becomes very skewed. It's twisted. It's like they're looking at life in a hall of mirrors. Everything is distorted. They're not seeing anything the way that it really is. We see Rachel telling Jacob in verse 1, Give me children or else I die. And when her maid bears two sons for Jacob, Rachel declares that she has through great wrestlings prevailed over her sister. Her sister has bore four sons for Jacob. I mean, there's just this skewed perspective. She's just not seeing things the way they are. Leah has the same problem. She accuses Rachel of basically stealing her husband away from her, verse 15. When when you think about it, if anything, it was the other way around. Rachel was the wife that Jacob asked for, that he worked seven years for, and the wife he thought he was getting. Leah was foisted upon him in a bait-and-switch scheme. So each, each one, uh, also in this skewed perspective, 
tends to view God not as the living God who is the, st- uh, the foundation and focus and chief love and desire of their life, but more as a means to an end, a means to winning and prevailing over her sister. When Rachel's maid bears a son for Jacob, Rachel declares, God has judged my case and given me a son, verse 6. When Leah bears Issachar, she declares, God has given me my wages. How many people want wages from God? There's only one thing the Bible says that we can truly earn from God. The wages of sin is death. You want wages? Sin will pay you a wage. God will not. There is no way that we can go beyond what we already owe God by virtue of the fact that he made us in his image. And when we betrayed him, he came after us with his son and adopted us back. There is no way that we can go beyond all that we owe God so that he owes us a wage. But that's the way that Leah is thinking of it. They each come to view Jacob, their husband, as a means to an end rather than as their husband. We see this in the very strange incident regarding the mandrakes. Now, mandrakes in the ancient world were viewed as an aphrodisiac, kind of like a love potion. And so Rachel, in her desperation, is hoping that maybe the mandrakes will cause her to conceive. And so Rachel comes wanting some of Leah's mandrakes. Leah says, is it a small matter that you have taken my husband and now you want to take my son's mandrakes too? And so Rachel barters. And so she, what does she barter with? She barters a night for Leah with Jacob. Like she's letting her borrow her vacuum cleaner or something. It's verse 15. And when Jacob comes home, Leah just marches right up and says, You must come in to me because I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Jacob is just a means to an end. He's kind of like God is a means to an end. To winning. To prevailing over their rival. Well, in contrast to what we see here with Rachel and Leah, let's look at a counterexample. Let's look at Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Well, like Rachel and Leah, Hannah shared a husband with another woman. Something she wasn't designed for, something she probably did not choose. The other woman's name was Penina. Hannah was beloved of her husband. But she was barren, while Panina was blessed with many children. Panina made it her business to make Hannah miserable, continually gloating over all of her children and finding constant ways to rub in the fact that Hannah was barren. This drove Hannah to tears on many occasions. It saddened her, but she did not respond in kind. So in other words, you have the competition and the nastiness, but it's all one-sided. It's coming from Panina because Hannah does not participate. 
Well, there's only one way that she can do that, and that's if she shows the kind of extraordinary godliness. That means extraordinary fixedness on the living God. And that's what Hannah did. She clung to God. She kept pouring out her heart to God. She understood that no matter what Penina was doing or the evil she intended against her, nothing was coming to her in life except from the hand of God. Even if somebody intended evil, did not change that fact. She understand there are no random events in my life. Everything that comes to me is coming to me from the hand of my Father who loves me and intends my good. And she just keeps clinging to God. She just keeps clinging to God day after day. And that's what it takes. That's what it takes in life. And that's certainly what it takes in this kind of trial and hardship. So she pours out her heart to God. And on one particular occasion, she promises God that if he gives her a son, she would devote him to the Lord all the days of his life. And then she was able, by God's grace, to commit the matter to the Lord and to go her way with a glad face. God later answered her prayer and gave her a son, and she kept her promise. Once her son was weaned, she brought him to the priest Eli and devoted her son to the Lord. Her son was Samuel the great prophet and reformer in Israel, who would turn God's people back to the Lord, leading up to the reign of David, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And so we see with Hannah here, this hardship and this sadness that she suffered over being barren, it wasn't because God didn't love her, it's because he did. And he chose her to bear Samuel, who was one of the big pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So Hannah is an example of the kind of heart and attitude Rachel and Leah should have fought for and maintained toward God and one another. So let's turn now to Jacob. I indicated before that Jacob showed a lack of leadership. Now, let me say... um, We've already noted how difficult of a situation this is, and I don't want to go into these things with haughtiness or harshness. Uh, We will see later in the text that Jacob, many times he's out in the fields. He has to be gone. Flocks are out there on pastures. And so this is a, a hardship for him. He's not at home all the time. But I do think that we see a void, a, a, a vacuum, as it were, uh, of his leadership uh, as well. How so? Well, first of all, he passively goes along with Rachel and Leah's bartering of his sexual services for the mandrakes. He just, they barter. Rachel says, for the mandrakes, he, he will sleep with you tonight. Leah marches up to them. You have to sleep with me tonight. I've bought you with the mandrakes. And, and Jacob just, he just goes where they tell him to go. He allows himself to become a mere means to an end, thus furthering their warfare with one another. That's not his job as a husband. He's not loving them. He's not ministering to them. 
Secondly, he passively goes along with Rachel and Leah's plan for him to take two additional wives, specifically their two maids, Bilhah and Zilpah. You see that in verses 3 through 13. You see, what a great time, what a great opportunity for Jacob to minister to Rachel and Leah by pointing out the experience of his grandmother, Sarah, who urged his grandfather Abraham to take her handmaid, Hagar, as wife in Genesis chapter 16. What a great opportunity for him to minister to Rachel and Leah by pointing out that that did not work out the way Sarah planned. It backfired. There were all sorts of unintended consequences that were negative. The unhappiness and the strife in Abraham's household went up, not down. You cannot fix the problem of sharing a husband among two wives by sharing him among four. Third, Jacob fails to minister to Rachel in her desperation when he declares, give me children or else I die, verses 1 and 2. Now he gets angry and he says, am I in the place of God who has closed your womb and withheld from you the fruit of the womb? In other words, he simply looks that she appears to be blaming him. He gets what she's saying at a certain level, but he's not actually looking at what is going on with Rachel. She's not making a propositional, logical statement. She is making a cry of desperation. What a good opportunity for Jacob to minister to Rachel in her desperation by pointing out God's gracious dealings with his mother Rebecca and his grandmother Sarah, both of whom were barren for many years, much longer than Rachel will turn out to be barren, and both of whom God graciously answered prayer and miraculously caused them to conceive, not just to conceive, but to conceive and bear the Christ type, the one who was going to be the living picture of Christ who was to come, first Isaac, then Jacob, and who would be the heir of the covenant. Once again, Sarah and Rebekah were not barren because God didn't love them. They were barren because he did and because he chose them for something very special to conceive under miraculous circumstances because that's how the real Christ is conceived. The human race is incapable of bearing him. Any man in the human race is incapable of uh, begetting him and any woman is incapable of conceiving him. It takes the miraculous work of God to bring about the Christ. So the reason why these women are barren is because God has chosen them to preach the gospel through. That's a privilege. That's a blessing. It just doesn't feel like one in the moment. But what a great time for Jacob to point out to Rachel, well, let me tell you about my mother. 
And let me tell you about my grandmother and what happened and what God did with them. Because indeed, this will turn out to be God's plan for Rachel. Because he is going to cause her to conceive and bear Joseph, who will be the Christ type for the next generation. Indeed, Joseph will be one of the greatest pictures of Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. Number four, it appears, we aren't given exact details on this, but it appears that Jacob also failed to take the opportunity to minister to Leah by helping her to see that Rachel is not her enemy. Helping her to see that Rachel did not steal Jacob away from Leah. Helping her to see that at the human level, it was Laban who stole all of their dream marriages away. So they're all really in the same boat. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. All by Laban's doing at the human's level, and yet all under the sovereignty of God, who works all things, even those things intended for evil, for their good. In sum, Jacob's behavior here bears all the hallmarks of a man who is just trying to make everyone happy. Or at least to keep the focus of anger off of him by just going along. Perhaps Jacob is numb. Perhaps Jacob feels like God has let him down. (coughs) Excuse me. Because Jacob has had somebody wrestling against him all his life. Starting in the womb when his brother Esau was wrestling with him. Then Esau and his father are wrestling with him because even though God decreed that he would be the heir of the covenant, Isaac gets into this phase where he is bound and determined to give it to Esau. When, when, when he flees to Laban in order because Esau wants to kill him and also Isaac has told him to go and to find his wife here, not from among the Canaanites. He goes to Laban. Laban initially embraces him as family, but then very quickly starts to treat him like a hired hand. And Laban wrestles with him. Um, He works seven years for Laban for Rachel. uh, Laban pulls the bait and switch. And he gives him Leah. And then he dangles Rachel in front of him again and says, she can be yours right now. Two wives and including Rachel, whom you wanted, um, but seven more years of labor. And if as matters go forward, Laban's going to keep changing his wages. And essentially this whole time, Jacob's got to live like a servant because he's not receiving any wages because Laban's keeping them all for his daughters. Somebody is always wrestling with him. And in the future, it's all going to come to a head when Jacob is all by himself. After he's left Laban, he's headed back to Canaan, and he hears that, Le- that, uh, that Esau is coming out to meet him, and Esau's got 400 men with him. And he just knows he's coming to kill him 
and slaughter all those who were with him. So he's already sent everybody else ahead, hoping that seeing all the, the women and the children and the flocks and the gifts that he has for Esau will appease his heart and somehow soften his heart. And so Jacob is left one final night. He's all by himself. And wouldn't you know it, a stranger shows up in his camp and begins to fight with him. And this is a fight that goes on all night long, wrestling all night long. And Jacob's got to be thinking, what a perfect end to my life. Wrestling from the womb, and here here I am, I'm going to die wrestling with some stranger who shows up in my camp. But as the day approaches, the stranger is going to touch him in the hip, and his hip is going to go out of joint, and Jacob is going to realize, I'm not wrestling with a man. I'm wrestling with God. And so Jacob knows he can't, this is not a match that he can actually win. He just begins to cling. And God says, let me go because the day is breaking. And Jacob just keeps clinging. And he's saying, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Now you see, he's doing the same thing that Hannah was doing. God wrestles with every single one of his children. The way that a father will get down on the floor and wrestle with his little toddlers. God wrestles with every single one of us through all of the various circumstances of life by sending us trials and hardships and afflictions. Things that make us have to get strong, have to be fixed upon God, have to cling to Him and not let go. Things that make us over time have to stand up to our full height and become all that it means to be a son or daughter of God. That's the point. Hebrews tells us that even Jesus, the Father, wrestled with in this way. Jesus, who was sinless. Jesus, who was flawless. He faced more hardship and trial and affliction and unfairness than any man ever. But even for him, he didn't need to have any sins worked out of his life. But what he did need to do as the Son of God was stand up to his full height. And to become actually in experience the fullness of what it means to be the Son of God. God does the same thing in Christ with every single one of us. And that's when it all came, will come home to Jacob is when he realizes, I've only had one person wrestling with me for my whole life, really. And it's been God the whole way. And the way you, quote, win with God, the way you prevail with God is you just don't let go. You just keep clinging. And so we see here, coming back to Jacob as a husband, as a father, he seems to have the fear that if he tries any sort of active leadership, if he actually tries to do what is right, then one or both of his wives are going to be angry at him and unhappy. So he doesn't do anything. He's just passive. The problem is, dude, (laughs) they're already unhappy. They're miserable. They're already angry. 
Just trying to make everybody happy is not the same thing as loving them. It's also not the same thing as loving God. Trying to make everybody happy is not the same thing as seeking their good or their blessing or even their happiness. You know, men, we were each born with a desire to be a hero. This is the way boys come out of the womb. From the time we're little boys, we want to be a hero. Statistically speaking, most of us will never have the opportunity to be a hero on the battlefield, on a crime scene, in a disaster scenario. But every Christian husband and father I know has multiple opportunities to be the hero in the context of his family. We just don't recognize the situation for what it is. Many times being a hero for us as men, being a hero in the context of marriage and family is harder than being a hero on the battlefield. I've known a lot of Christian men whom I fully believe would take a bullet or throw themselves on a grenade to save their fellow soldiers on the battlefield, but they are paralyzed when spiritual need, even dire need, arises and their family. And it's easy for us to believe as men that I'm just not suited for this. God didn't give me the right kind of personality or he didn't give me the right kind of knowledge or he didn't give me the right kind of, of, of strength or magnetism or natural leadership or all of these things. And so we tend to go passive. Let me tell you something. God did not make a mistake when he chose you to be the husband to your wife. And when he chose you to be the one through whom he has given the children that he has given to you to be their father. Think about the man out of all the men who have ever lived whom God chose to raise his only begotten son. A carpenter from Nazareth the lowest black backwater place in all of Galilee. A carpenter. And God started calling Joseph to do all these things. First of all, he gives him a dream in the middle of the night. Joseph is trying to figure out how he can quietly put away Mary because she's pregnant. And God tells him, no, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This is my work. You take her as your wife. And then we just see Joseph next day, first thing, he is taking her and his wife. Joseph is not the smartest guy. He's a carpenter in Nazareth, for goodness sakes. This guy, the one thing we just see about Joseph, is he just, he just starts, he just starts putting one foot in front of the other. He just starts doing what God says. It's, it's not that he feels like he is so well equipped. Later, he's going to tell Joseph to get Mary and Jesus and to flee to Egypt because Herod is going to come to kill him. Middle of the night again. He's going to have to be uprooted from his business. He's going to have to go where they don't know anyone. And Joseph, he just starts moving his feet. He just gets up. I guarantee you he didn't feel up to the task. He just started doing it. 
Men, I've had situations where I felt like I needed to do something and I just couldn't do it. It just wasn't up for it. I could I could think of other men who would be much better suited than me. But God wasn't calling them to do it. He was calling me to do it. And what I found is that as I prayed about it over time and asked God to strengthen me, give me the ability to do it, give me the wisdom to do it, show me how to do it, I found that as I prayed about it multiple times, suddenly God would just seem to give me a way to go at it that I could do. And I believe that he will do the same for you. God did not make a mistake when he made you the husband of your wife and the father of your children, just like he did not make a mistake with Joseph. You just have to get up. If God's told you to do it, you're praying about it, he's going to give you the ability to do it. We just have to get up and do. The biggest messes I've ever made in my life, I wasn't trying to make a mess, I wasn't trying to cause any problems, but there have been several times where even though I didn't mean to make a mess, I made a mess. The biggest messes I have ever made in my life have been because I was trying to make everybody happy. That's not the calling. That's not your job. That's not the same thing as loving others and seeking their good. Rise up, men. God has called you. He's placed you just where he wants you. Rise up in the name of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.